Hello, everybody. Welcome. It's good to see all of you here. You know, I never know what are you supposed to say when it's high noon. You don't say good morning. You don't say good afternoon. You just say hello, I guess, right? Happy noon, everybody. Actually, it is in a moment afternoon, so we'll do that. I'm Laura Bloomberg. I'm the dean of the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. And in my capacity as dean, I really do welcome you here for this conversation today. Um, as all of you know, we are a school. We have students here taking classes. And a huge part of what we do is this, which is engage with our community on important conversations about events of the day that affect all of us in the realm of public affairs, public policy, urban and regional planning. Um, and that's an equally important part of what we do. So today we are going to be talking about the future of conservatism, which is something that is, uh, I think, uppermost in the minds of many people, and it certainly is uppermost in the minds of many of our, our students. What we'll be doing today is you'll be hearing from our invited speaker, and then our speaker and a moderator will be taking the stage for a conversation. So in reverse order of the people that you will be hearing from, I want to say something about Vin Weber, who will take the stage in a little bit. Um, Vin is a member of Congress representing Minnesota, as you all know, in the US House from 1981 to 1993. Prior to his service um, representing us in Congress, he was served as press secretary to Representative Tom Hagedorn and also as an aide to Senator Rudy Boschowitz, who many of us know well and have um, the highest regard for. And, and uh, Rudy Boschowitz was here, and we were celebrating his long tenure um, not that long ago. I told Vin just as I was walking up here what I was going to say, and I am going to say is the two most important things I think about Vin Weber are one, he, he serves generously on our Humphrey School Advisory Council. So as a dean, I benefit tremendously from his, his guidance and his dedication to time. And he does that on top of um, his, his, his most recent previous work as a lobbyist with Mercury LLC and his um, remarkable strategic work with the Republican Party. So we're grateful to him for his service on our advisory council. He's also the son of Patty Weber, who sadly we lost earlier this year, but if um, any of you followed politics in Minnesota over the last many decades, you would know that everything that Vin learned about politics, he learned from his formidable mother, um, who uh, my, my husband to this day still talks about being a young intern in Rudy Boschowitz's office and needing to um, meet the extremely high standards of Patty Weber. <laughs> Um, but he could do it because she also came with the best jokes to the office, so she was remarkable. Vin will join you um, in a little bit. And now let me take this opportunity to introduce to you Ramesh Panuru, who will be our speaker today. Ramesh is a senior editor of the National Review. He is a columnist with, for Bloomberg View and a contributing editor to the journal National Affairs. You may know he is also a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. Mr. Panuru is a co-editor of some books, a couple of books. One is Room to Grow, Conservative Reforms for a Limited Government and a Thriving Middle Class, which was published in 2004. And in 2006, the book The Party of Death, The Democrats, the Media, the Courts, and the Disregard for Human Life. Mr. Panuru holds a bachelor's degree in history from Princeton, 
And I can also tell you that we are very grateful to Ramesh Panuru for his remarkable service and support of the Humphrey School uh, through our Policy Fellows Program uh, and his engagement with our fellows when they are um, in DC as well as here. So please welcome to the podium to speak about the future of conservatism, Ramesh Panuru. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure uh, to be at the Humphrey Institute. It's a pleasure, uh, especially um, when the weather is not freezing. Uh, we, we've timed this very carefully, this visit. Um, I uh, don't know if you've had a chance to follow my work on the many media that uh, Dean Bloomberg mentioned that I work for, uh, but I should let you know I am a conservative Republican, but of the, the subspecies um, that is uh, frequently critical of President Trump, um, uh, although also uh, willing to say when I think he's done something correct, uh, whether he's done it by design or accident. Uh, <laughs> My, uh, my friend Jonah Goldberg is in the, uh, in the same position, also uh, somebody who's, who's very critical of Trump and did not vote for him last time. Uh, but he was, uh, somebody was comparing Trump to uh, Hitler. And at that, uh, Jonah bridled and he said, no, Trump is not like Hitler. Hitler could have gotten rid of Obamacare. It was a nice line, uh, and I think it also sort of um, casts light on a couple of the paradoxes of our time for conservatives. Um, one is that for all the tumult and controversy and noise, not a lot is getting done uh, that uh, conservatives would want to see. There's not a lot of a conservative agenda that is being pursued, let alone pursued successfully. And a second is that although this is a time of great ferment on the right, there's a lot of uh, uh, rethinking of old principles, um, it's in many ways a very orthodox conservative administration that with some very significant exceptions on policy uh, looks like Scott Walker or Marco Rubio had won the nomination in 2016. So I want to take a step back and talk a little bit about how we got here and, and the, the possibilities going forward. Uh, I think what happened to the Republican Party in 2016 was an extremely unusual event, one that I can't really think of a great historical precedent for. Because you had a couple things happen simultaneously. One the overthrow of an old order. You had an old Republican orthodoxy um, that had largely been inherited from Ronald Reagan, uh, a Republican program that had been forged in the late 70s and early 1980s, and that um, stressed things like entitlement reform and free trade and tax cuts, um, limited government, deregulation, and it turned out that by 2016, that formula not only no longer spoke to the electorate at large, as, as some conservatives had been warning for several years, 
um, but didn't even speak to a significant number of Republican voters. And so in the primaries, um, various groups, notably the Club for Growth, would point out that Trump um, had a record of disagreeing with these principles, and in some cases still seemed to disagree with those principles, and it had no effect. Uh, it just, uh, there were voters who positively liked Trump's heterodoxies, and there were voters who didn't mind them, uh, and uh, the, the combination was enough that, uh, that he was able to get the nomination, um, have, despite having a record and stances that many Republicans would have thought would have doomed a candidate in previous cycles. So it's not totally unheard of for an old orthodoxy to be shattered, for an old establishment to be discredited and overthrown. But then you had the second thing, which is that that old order, that old establishment, and that old program were not replaced by anything else. Um, there have been various intellectuals who have tried to uh, put together what they think of as a kind of Trumpian political philosophy, a Trumpian version of conservatism. Um, and, you know, this might be a sort of more anti-interventionist uh, foreign policy and a more interventionist economic policy, a nationalist position on immigration um, that stressed reducing immigration levels. Uh, the trouble with this Trumpism is that there's no evidence that Trump himself is actually a Trumpist. Um, he himself seems to have some impulses, uh, but, um, but he veers uh, chaotically from position to position, take immigration, his signature position, um, probably the most distinctive stance he's taken over the years. During the 2016 campaign, um, he spent most of the primaries uh, into August uh, saying that he was going to deport all or almost all illegal immigrants. And then in August, he flipped on that issue and, and just tacitly admitted that most illegal immigrants were going to be here to stay. Um, he didn't really have a position on legal immigration until well into his first year in office where he decided that he wanted a massive reduction in legal immigration levels. And then a year later in a State of the Union address said that he wanted to see immigration at the highest levels ever. Uh, whatever this is, it is not, I think, a coherent political philosophy. Um, there are people who have, tr again, who are very sincerely trying to build a kind of nationalist populism of the right, um, but I don't think you can make the case that Trump is one of them. So there was no Trumpian alternative to the orthodox conservative positions on health care or on taxes. Um, and uh, there was no, so, okay, so this happens sometimes too, right? You see an old establishment overthrown and it's not clear what's going to come next. Uh, but in those circumstances usually, you're looking at a party that's in the wilderness, struggling to determine what it stands for and what it's going to do once it achieves power. But to the surprise of everybody, including a lot of Republicans and including at least a lot of people in the Trump campaign itself, instead of being in the wilderness, they found themselves after election night 2016 in charge of the White House, the House, the Senate, most governorships, most state legislatures. So you had a party that was sort of intellectually in the wilderness, but also in power at the same time. Well, President Trump's response to this state of events was largely to defer to the congressional leadership of the Republican Party on what the agenda would be. 
it was the congressional leadership that decided that tax reform and health care would be the main issues taken up, not, say, infrastructure uh, and a wall on our southern border. And he largely deferred to the congressional Republican leadership on what form the legislation on taxes and health care would take. Um, it was really the first time we'd seen an attempt at congressional government, at least by the Republicans, since before the New Deal, since the 1920s. I would say that a lot of the, a lot of the muscles of uh, congressional government have atrophied uh, over this long period. And so it's not particularly surprising that this effort was not particularly successful. So there were really only two major pieces of legislation that were taken up, the health care and tax bills. The health care bill had a long, drawn-out death. And the tax bill, although it got enacted, um, proved, I think, to be a political dud. didn't seem to uh, energize um, Republican voters or attract swing voters in the midterm elections in the way that Republicans thought it might. And the president himself wasn't especially interested in, in driving that message in the midterms. But maybe what's even more striking about the legislative record in 2017, 2018 is that after the tax bill, the Republican Congress, having had power for the unified control of the government for the first time in 11 years, just gave up, just didn't want to pursue anything else except for confirming judges. Uh, partly that's because uh, of the defeat in Alabama uh, and John McCain's illness leading to narrow margins in the Senate. But even going into the 2018 election, you did not see Republicans saying, if we keep the House and keep or expand our majority in the Senate, these are the four or five things that we are going to work with President Trump to do, uh, which is a very kind of typical campaign tactic. There really wasn't any such platform this time. Um, and even more than that, there was no faction of the Republican Party that was actually demanding a platform. There were no, the, the Never Trumpers didn't have any particular set of ideas that they wanted pursued. Trump's biggest fans didn't really either, with the exception of the wall, which they've never really come up with a strategy for attaining. Uh, Republicans really didn't run on anything. Uh, and um, this has typically not been a, a successful strategy for Republicans. I'm not sure it would have been. Uh, more successful this time to come up with something that they all agreed on, even assuming such a thing could be done, but clearly it didn't work. Uh, and, and what we basically had instead was a kind of culture war election uh, in which um, the distribution of the Senate seats that were up uh, allowed Republicans to make gains even uh, with an electorate that nationally um, was tilting pretty heavily blue with high turnout. Now that there's a Democratic House, um, policy making, legislative policy making is largely ground to a halt. Um, we're continuing to see confirmations and we're continuing to see regulatory changes that are initiated by the administration, although those regulatory changes can easily be undone the next time the Democrats take power. Uh, and, <clears throat> and I think we will probably hear yet more vows tonight from the Democrats in debate that they will do exactly that. Uh, <clears throat> there is, at the same time, a lot of intellectual debate among conservatives about, about what conservatism ought to look like. Uh, I think that there are a lot of congressional Republicans 
who um, I would say sort of are still in a kind of pre-2016 mindset would like to go back to the way things used to be uh, and have the idea that once Trump fades from the scene, whether that's from losing in 2020 or losing in or, or, or winning and then, and then being term limited in 2024, that things, the Republican Party will go back to normal. Um, <clears throat> I don't think that that's gonna be possible, but I do think that uh, enough people in the party are going to want it to be possible, that it'll, it'll be a factor in the development of the party. And then there are people who think that what's been holding the Republican Party back so far is its libertarianism, that its attachment to free markets has hindered it, and instead it should be willing to use activist government um, to deliver results for its voters, and particularly for the Obama-Trump voters, um, many of them in the upper Midwest, uh, although when it comes down to figuring out what that activist government would look like and how it would differ from uh, either traditional liberal government or traditional conservative government, we haven't had a lot of details. Mostly it seems to involve a lot of trade wars uh, and <clears throat> whether that actually would deliver benefits for the country at large, uh, for America's working class is very much disputable. One interesting thing that's been happening in over the last two years or so is that the public seems to be moving in a more pro-free trade direction in reaction to this administration's spastic efforts at protection. So uh, I don't know that uh, uh, conservatism's future has ever been as up for grabs as it is right now. I would like to say that, uh, I would like to see a future for conservatism that synthesizes what was right about that pre-2016 conservatism um, with some of the uh, realities that uh, Trump's, that fuel Trump's rise, such as the failure of the old synthesis to work for working class Americans and the need to adapt it for the circumstances of our era. Uh, but I think it's gonna, be, uh, it's gonna be very much up for grabs. I think this is a time of great political flux. I've, I'm talking about the flux on the conservative side, but I'd say that there's a fair amount of flux on the Democratic side as well. Um, there is uh, a kind of almost full-scale repudiation of the Clinton presidency, and to some extent even of the Obama presidency that's going on right now. Um, it's just what I've been covering national politics since the Clinton years, Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and into Trump. Uh, Clinton, Bush, and Obama were our first three back-to-back eight-year presidencies since the 1820s, and uh, we called that uh, the tail end of it, the era of good feelings. Uh, I propose that we should call our own the era of bad feelings. Uh, and uh, I, I think that uh, we've got uh, a few more years of, uh, of bad feelings ahead of us before hopefully uh, we uh, build a new political alignment and uh, get to something more hopeful. Thank you. I always like to end on a cheery note. Yeah, I know. So, yeah. <laughs> well, we had a uh, monumental event last week in Minneapolis, as you probably are aware. Tens of thousands of people 
cheering loudly, and they should have because the Gophers beat Nebraska. <laughs> anyway, thank you for coming to the Humphrey, and I want to pre-emphasize what Dean Bloomberg said that uh, Ramesh has given of his time for the, for the Humphrey School, and particularly for the Policy Fellows Program that I'm involved in, uh, quite generously over the last uh, several years. So let's, uh, let me pick up sort of where you left off. I, the, the disruption of the establishment, uh, I think, is accurate, an accurate way of describing what, what has happened. Uh, it's not the first time, though. If you th I, mean, I got into politics or got into office when Ronald Reagan was elected, and Reagan's disruption of the establishment, in a way, was no less monumental. You know, prior to his election, for a long time, the Republican Party had geographically been Northeast and Midwest. It ranged ideologically from sort of moderate conservatives to Rockefeller, Jacob Javits-style Republicans, who were quite liberal, really. Um, and, you know, after Reagan passed the scene, the policy differences that he brought to the party remained. I mean, he, he, we, were, we had not been a tax-cutting party. We were and are a tax-cutting party. We had not focused a lot on deregulation. We now do focus on deregulation. A strong and muscular foreign policy, maybe that was always a Republican view, but not necessarily. Uh, uh, so my question is, is what, regardless, I mean, I think that there's a tendency to criticize Trump because of his rhetoric and his demeanor and uh, uh, his seemingly haphazard approach to politics. But we have seen changes in the, the, the party on trade and on its emphasis on immigration, on environmental regulation and things. How much of this lasts after mm -hmm. Trump, regardless of whether Trump is gone in a month or a year or five years? Well, it depends. So let's start, let's take immigration and trade. Uh, on immigration, um, as with trade, you're seeing a, an increase in public support for immigration in reaction to President Trump. Um, but not just, I think, in reaction to President Trump. I think there's been, as particularly among liberals and Democrats, an increasing support for immigration over the last 20 years. Um, we're far from the, you know, the Clinton administration, which was advocating a one-third reduction in legal immigration briefly in the mid-1990s. Um, one of your platforms is the National Review, which was maybe the first conservative voice on a restrictive immigration policy for many years. Right. Yeah, I don't think that we're going to go... So in t if you look back at the beginning of the 2016 primaries, you had, what, 16, 17 Republican candidates, and all but two of them were for increased immigration. Um, which was a position held by about 7% of Republican voters. Um, I think there was a kind of attempt to foist a position on the party that didn't fit its voters after the 2012 defeat, uh, and it backfired. I don't think that, that that is going to be recoverable. I don't think that um, that necessarily means that the future of the party is family separation. I certainly hope it isn't. Um, but I think it's probably going to be a more restrained immigration policy, emphasizing a shift towards skills uh, and so forth. On trade, I think part of it depends on, on what the final outcome is here. I have been fairly pessimistic about the president's trade strategy, in part because I'm not sure that a trade strategy actually exists. Um, if, it, if it is seen... Uh, as inflicting a lot of damage on Americans and not giving us much in return, then I think that um, 
the, the pro-trade position of Republicans reasserts itself over time, but that's not a given, and we could very well have at least a, protection, a larger protectionist wing in the party than we used to have. I do think people overread the lack of congressional resistance to the president on this issue. Um, on, on trade. On trade, because I think it's almost entirely a matter yeah. of the fact that you'd have to get two-thirds majorities in the House and the Senate to override a veto. Um, it's not that most of them think this is a good idea. Hasn't he, though, on trade, just to continue on that for one second, uh, I, you know, I'm a free trader, I don't like the use of tariffs, but hasn't he identified a real problem with China? I mean, we can argue about whether or not this is the right way to approach it, but we have a real problem with their uh, absorption of our intellectual property and subsidization of their uh, major industries to compete with us around the world. Um, the, worst, the worst thing, in my view, about the trade war that he's launched is it looks like we're losing it. Mm -hmm. So um, if you were most focused on um, tech, forced technology transfer, uh, intellectual property theft, state-owned enterprises, it seems to me one thing you would do is have, um, you'd have had a multilateral approach with other countries that share our interests on these matters and don't want mm -hmm. uh, China to get away with being a rule breaker. Uh, and you would, you would try to, to push um, Pacific trade in a positive direction. You could even call it a trans-Pacific partnership. <laughs> Uh, but, of course, the, the president pulled out of that in one of his, his first yeah, acts. Yeah. And it's not clear that his trade negotiators are focused on those issues. Peter Navarro, um, his, the trade advisor who often seems to, to have the greatest influence on him, is against bilateral trade deficits. It's, and those are just it's a different set of issues. I think that that's crazier. I don't think that there's any real lo economic logic behind that mm -hmm. focus. Um, but, you know, I mean, we, there have been reports um, in the Wall Street Journal about his trade negotiators arguing with one another in front of their Chinese counterparts, which I think suggests the, the, maybe the ramshackle nature of this. Yeah. Let, let's broaden the discussion a little bit or try to get a little bit away from Trump. Um, this is impossible. It's not possible, right? I, I know it's not possible, but we're going to try. No, the, we, the, real, we, the real ambition of this presidency is to make Trump the center of every conversation in the world, and we, he has been successful. But in that respect, we yeah. can, at least for a, an hour or so, okay. be the resistance. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, so so put, putting the president aside, you know, we're talking today about what is the future of conservatism. For putting the candidate aside, what would a conservative platform going into the 2020 election that Ramesh Panuru devised uh, <laughs> yeah. look like? Um, well, we, we clearly need an Indian American Supreme Court justice. <laughs> That's, uh, maybe somebody without a law degree, frankly. <laughs> uh, it's time to bring that kind of diversity <laughs> to the bench. Um, I think that there are a number of institutions in American life that have failed to adapt to changes in our society. Um, and I hesitate to bring one of them up in this particular place, but I think higher education is one of them. I think that um, for several generations, we have had a bipartisan strategy of trying to send as many young people and as much money, frankly, as we can into these institutions. Uh, and that strategy worked for a long time, but, that, but has run into diminishing returns. Um, we are not increasing the college completion rate um, very rapidly. Um, that's really kind of stagnated. 
um, and uh, costs have continued to rise. The, um, the dropout rate is pretty high. I think we need to look into expanding the options for young people who are not going to go to a four-year traditional brick-and-mortar collegiate institution. I think there's a lot of things you could do with that. I think there's some things you could do to improve people's ability to finance the traditional experience as well, income share agreements being one of them. But I think we should deregulate accreditation, allow different kinds of institutions to bloom, allow um, for additional certification uh, procedures that are outside of college. And I do think a lot of, um, you know, we, when we talk about education and, and the federal government, we spend, we tend to talk about K to 12 education, mm -hmm. where the federal government actually doesn't provide much of the, most of the funding and doesn't have much say, and where strategies for reform typically run aground because of that fact. Higher education is a different picture. A <coughs> lot of our higher education um, is shaped by federal policy. So that's one area. Is somebody uh, talking about that? Outside, I don't mean at the presidential. Is there somebody in Congress or governors that you would point to as being the well, future I, of that issue for conservatives? I think in bits and pieces. Well, Lamar Alexander is retiring, but yeah. he has actually been interested in doing uh, incremental steps on a lot of those fronts. Mm -hmm. Mike Lee, um, Senator from Utah, Senator Rubio in Florida, working sometimes with Senator Wyden of Oregon. Uh, and Senator Warner of uh, Virginia. So there are even there are some places you can you can have bipartisan action on this. But I'll tell you, most Republicans you talk to on this issue, there's this instinctive shrinking from it. Mm -hmm. There's well, that's that's you know sort of that's a Democratic issue, isn't it? Or well, I don't see anything about higher education in the Constitution. Yeah. And mm -hmm. okay, well, are you planning to zero out all of our higher education plans because of, that's your constitutional view? And if not. Can we make some improvements in our policies <laughs> yeah. while we get wait till we get there? Yeah. yeah. So education reform is big. What else? Uh, I th do think that, uh, and uh, and I know Republican political strategists hate this idea. I do think we have to go back to health care. Um, I do think. Yeah, I could see it's getting indigestion uh, when I mention it. Um, but it, it does seem to me that. Um, that a lot of people have been priced out mm -hmm. of uh, affordable coverage of the kind that they would want and that we should work to make it possible for everybody to at least be able to purchase a catastrophic policy um, that protects them from major financial losses related to health care. Um, and that this is a place where uh, I think you can, people would be willing to buy that, people would be willing to sell it. Mm -hmm. You've got to free up the space in the market where that can be allowed to happen. I was I, I, I cringe at that issue because I I was taught a lesson a long time ago. If you might I don't know if you remember the name Bob Teeter. Bob Teeter was the the, the Bush pollster George H W Bush, and when Bush was vice president, Bob Teeter was the pollster for congressional Republicans, and I got to know him very well. Spent a lot of time with him, and he always told us the issues of the future are education and healthcare, education and healthcare, education and healthcare. So his candidate, George H.W. Bush, vice president, runs for president in 1988. He's the pollster. And Bush says, I want to be the education president. So I saw Teeter at the convention that year. And I said, Bob, I see your handiwork here. He's talking about being the education president. But what about health care? 
And he said, well, I've changed my view just a little bit. I still think they are the issues of the future. Education is the winning issue of the future. Healthcare is the losing issue of the future. <laughs> so when, when yeah. you say make healthcare front and center, I don't disagree with your policies. I'm not sure it's a good right. political strategy. Well, I mean, the, the great obstacle there, the central fact of the politics of healthcare is people fear disruption imposed by Washington, mm -hmm. um, whether it's from the left or from the right. And it's hurt both parties when they've been seen as threatening that. And so you do have to work around that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, th I think you've got to be careful and you've got to create, w you've got to create options um, without having sort of the frontal attack on what people like and value about their health care. I, th I, think, I think it's odd how many Democrats right now, well, just as an aside to our discussion of the future of conservatism, have decided that after spending 10 years somewhat on the defensive, because you threw you know five or six million people out of their health plans, right, you're going right. to do it with 180 million people as your your encore performance. Yeah, it it's, it's kind of odd. The, the, you can go back and look at polling during the Clinton administration, Clinton Care, as well as Obamacare, mm -hmm. and you find a remarkable similarity. You know, you know, at the outset of a debate on a major health care reform, you usually get about 60, 65 percent of the people saying, "Oh yes, I'm in favor of major health care reform." Then you ask them if, they're, if they are satisfied with their own health care situation, and you get about 80% mm -hmm. that say, yes, I'm in favor, I'm satisfied with my own health care. Well, eventually, those two ideas collide, as they did in the Clinton administration. People realize, holy cow, this great big change in health care that I've been supporting is going to change my health care, mm -hmm. and that's not what I want. So it, it, I, I think the Democrats who are proposing uh, Medicare for all uh, are looking at polls and say, well, Medicare's popular, everybody wants to be covered. Once they litigate it in the campaign, my right. guess is it's just as big a loser as it was for Obama in the midterm elections after the passage of Obamacare or for Clinton. Yeah, well, and, um, you know, some of the people who like Medicare are 21 million people on Medicare Advantage, which the Medicare for All legislation would abolish. <laughs> Most of those people are happy with their plans, That's right. too. That's right. We haven't talked at all about uh, foreign policy, except I guess trade is sort of foreign policy, but one of the big changes that this president seems to be bringing to Republican thinking, and maybe broad, more broadly than that, is uh, a non-interventionism, which is on graphic display now with uh, the controversy mm -hmm. around what he's doing in Syria. Uh, we can talk about Syria if you'd like to, but I'm thinking more broadly, do you think that non-interventionism going forward is going to be sort of a principle of conservative foreign policy thinking? I don't think so. I don't think that it is really possible for it to be a major plank of either party's platform in the way it was possible in the 1920s and 1930s. You just can't, I think, be the leading power in the world and be an isolationist yeah. country. Um, and really nobody is, is advancing plans to unwind our commitments, um, our security guarantees, our troop placements um, throughout the world, including the president, who definitely has some non-interventionist instincts, um, but is also willing to say things, you know, tell the Saudis, let us know when we should attack Iran, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, we'll, you know, tell us to jump and we'll say how high. Um, or, you know, call in strikes against Syria when, uh, I guess that was four or five Syria policies ago. Um, and so, you know, people, people who are bigger, bigger supporters of the president than I am um, will often suggest that those of us who are critical are just people who want 
a an interventionist policy that is mm -hmm. sort of crusading for democracy everywhere, which I don't want myself, and I, I don't think makes sense for the country. But I think that regardless of your... I'm kind of soft on democracy. Yeah. <laughs> Having been the chairman of the right. National Endowment for Democracy, yeah. I don't want to give up on it. I wouldn't give up on it, uh, but I do think we have to pick our battles, right? I mean, yeah, I think, I I think you know, look, I think that, that uh, the idea that all human beings deserve to live in freedom is encoded into the American political DNA, um, and was even at the beginning, but where we said that our main role in it was going to be as an example to all. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the circumstances change and our role changes too. Um, but the, the sort of, you know, crusading everywhere, sort of a flat-footed reading of Bush's second inaugural address would make it sound as though we were going to, you know, bear any burden, pay any cost to do that, which I think doesn't, just doesn't, never make sense. Mm -hmm. That's just not a conservative way of looking at the world. Um, but whatever, wherever you're on the spectrum between isolationism and that kind of maybe Wilsonian interventionism you are, I think you want a prudent, responsible, and deliberate foreign policy of a kind that we're not getting right now. Let me shift to asking a sort of a basic political question, and then we'll take questions from the audience. Um, after the 2012 uh, Obama victory, the Republican Party led by Reince Priebus, who became chief of staff for President Trump, did what was unfortunately called the autopsy. And it was actually a pretty good study of the, what, why the Republicans had lost in 2012, or at least we thought it was a pretty good study. Some of it focused on fundraising, a lot of it focused on technology, but the, probably its main findings were, or recommendations were that the Republican Party had to compete in constituencies in a diversifying country where they were not very competitive. Hispanic voters, black voters, women, maybe you can add suburbanites to that. Um, I read one of your recent columns where you talk about why Republicans stick with Trump, and the first reason was pretty simple. A lot of us thought he was sure to lose, and a lot of people, just as soon as he won, thought, well, that was my major objection. I guess it was wrong. My question is, was the autopsy wrong? Do we, is, is there a path for a long-term path for the Republicans and conservatives to win that does not include becoming much more competitive in minority communities and in cities and places like that? So I was actually very critical of the autopsy at the time, and one reason was I think that there was a kind of overhyping of the demographic changes in the country, which are real, which Republicans do have to adapt to, but which do not tend to make a huge difference from one election to the next election. Demographic change was not the reason why you know, the permanent Republican majority that some people saw after the 2004 election slipped away, and four years later you have all Democratic government. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, people would say things like, well, you know, Republicans really have to win 40% of the non-white vote if they are going to win in 2016. That's what people were saying back in 2012, and if you looked at the numbers, that just seemed crazy. There was no logical reason why you couldn't have a, an increased share of the white working class vote. Um, and maybe just a tiny increase in uh, Hispanic and African-American votes, and you know, that's what you got. Uh, but I think that now Republicans have, have sort of overreacted and now think that all that demographic stuff was wrong. Uh, and in the long run, I do think it is true that you have to be more competitive among Asian-Americans, African-Americans, and Hispanics. Um, the other problem with the... So, so the autopsy was right about that. It got two things wrong. One, I think it, it, it assumed that you had to go towards comprehensive immigration reform in order to get a hearing among minorities. And 
Uh, I think for various reasons that was a mistake. But second, there was a huge blind spot, uh, and Trump actually saw it, and that is that the autopsy had nothing to say about economics. The autopsy's implicit message was we have this fantastic economic platform, and there are all these distractions on immigration and so forth that are keeping everybody from seeing how mm -hmm. great it is, when in fact that economic platform had become less and less relevant to most people's lives and, and fewer and fewer people thought that, uh, that tax cuts and uh, deregulation were what they needed. Um, last, I, I, I'll add one corollary question to that. Okay. Uh, the president, who was here last week, seems uh, to be ready to run a campaign against cities. Um, he's been attacking Baltimore, attacking Chicago, attacking San Francisco. He took a shot at Minneapolis, not as strong as at Baltimore. Can the Republican Party run against cities? Well, the Republican Party has historically run against cities before. I mean, if Dan Quayle tried in 1992 briefly to uh, to talk about Manhattan being, you know, this this uh, some of the, the best real estate on earth ruined by liberalism, <laughs> and um, the Repu since that time, the Democratic Party has become more dominant in urban areas, and the Republican Party has made big strides in rural and exurban areas. So the geographic divide has gotten starker. Um, it's nowhere more true than in this state, by the way. Yeah. The uh, uh, and the pr and. The, the number of persuadable voters generally has shrunk. They're still there. They can't be ignored, but it's shrunk. So a, mo a base mobilization strategy is more inviting to both parties. And now that coincides pretty neatly with the geographic division. Uh, and of course, now an educational and racial division. Um, so I would not say it's impossible for Trump to win, but I do think that that is, the, that is a recipe for a narrow win where um, you are not even getting a popular vote plurality, as in 2016, and that limits how much you can achieve. Um, you can, if, if what you want to achieve is to make, is, is liberal tears, right? Get everybody crying the next morning because you lost. Um, okay, but if you actually want to change our government, um, you need a, a stronger and broader coalition than that, I think. Okay. I'm going to take some of these questions. The first one is pretty basic, but I think it's appropriate. Define conservatism, please. Ah, all right. Since we're talking about conservatism, yeah. maybe we should say, define our terms. Yeah. Well, and, um, you know, like all of these, we were just, we were talking beforehand about how people talk about socialism without necessarily all agreeing on what socialism means. Um, conservatism has had a lot of different meanings over mm -hmm. time. Um, the conservatism that I'm interested in is um, about conserving the political inheritance that we received from the founders, um, that we got a pretty good system. Um, it's, they weren't infallible, uh, they weren't perfect, uh, but a pretty good system um, that requires active maintenance um, if it is going to continue. Um, and that, I think, uh, includes uh, a limited federalist government, um, not an inflexibly or rigidly uh, limited government, but one that, that, that seeks to promote the common welfare in a decentralized, uh, a decentralized way that is respectful of individual freedom. Okay. Um, I was going to ask you about social policy, and I didn't quite get to that, but we've got a couple of questions that lead to that. One person asks, how might the Republican Party, conservatives in general, 
edit their social policy platforms to stay relevant to young voters. Mm -hmm. uh, is this even necessary or important to the future of the party? And there have been a couple of questions in here about how do you, how do conservatives and Republicans appeal to young voters, which they're not doing right now? Right. So uh, I think that the, the increasing democratic slant of young voters is largely, almost entirely a function of the declining share of young people who are married white Christians. So married white Christians were the demographic core of the country for a very long time and are still the demographic core of the Republican Party. Uh, and that described actually a lot of people in the 18 to 29 year old demographic in the 1950s. Um, but it has, it describes a very, very small mm -hmm. percentage now. Um, so obviously what we need to do is get more people to get married. Um, but, uh, but short of that, um, as, we've, uh, as we were saying, I think Republicans do need to uh, make some inroads among non-whites. Um, I, I think on the social issues, uh, I guess I would think, I, I think of them as in sort of two buckets, abortion and everything else. Uh, and on abortion, what's really interesting is that, for example, you've seen a, a decline in religious attendance over the last two generations that's been pretty substantial. And yet, on your fundamental questions of, you know, do you consider yourself pro-life, pro-choice, or um, do you think that abortion should generally be legal or generally illegal, those numbers just have not budged, even given these demographic changes that you would think would move in a pro-choice direction. I don't see much evidence that the Republican Party's position fundamentally pro-life position is on net a political problem for them. I do think there are better and worse ways that position can be advanced. On other issues, same-sex marriage being the, the main one, that's an issue which really, unlike abortion, you saw a huge and yeah, why, rapid shift. Why, why did one issue change so dramatically and so quickly and the other glacially? So, I mean, this is a very simplistic way of looking at it. Uh, but I think that it captures something that is fundamentally true, and that is, and I, t I warned you it was simplistic, abortion is sad and weddings are happy. Yeah. And uh, the abortion controversy is one in which you've got both sides capable of articulating their position in terms of individual rights. Whereas marriage, it was only one side that could do that. And this is a rights-oriented republic. And once you've defined yourself as, as being the side that's for individual rights, you've already won the argument, mm -hmm. essentially. And the marriage issue was something where once it became imaginable, once it became a concept for people, it had, it had already gone two-thirds of the way towards right, winning. Right. You said a minute ago that one, one of the things we needed to do was get more people to get married. <laughs> when Jonathan Rauch, uh, our friend, was a advocating for gay marriage a few years ago, I remember spending some time with him, and this was, that was one of his very serious arguments was that LGBTQ people would conservatize over time if they were more, if they were married because he believed what you said that marriage is a conservatizing influence on people. That would be interesting to see if that happens to be the case. Yeah, well, I mean, this is, this, you, it would be interesting to first of all try to figure out what you could measure to see if that were happening, and then you know do yeah. some empirical research on it. But uh, it's probably the kind of thing that that. Um, the evidence, it's, it's too early. I would say that, you know, compared to the 1970s, um, the gay rights movement is a much more bourgeois 
kind of movement, partly as it became mainstream. I mean, like, think about, like, the, from the movement from the mid-90s onward, what did, what did it want? It wanted the right to uh, get married and serve in the armed forces and be scoutmasters. Yeah, not exactly, I mean, not was, exactly radical ideas. Yeah, it's just like they were, they yeah. were the last squares. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, question. Can you both analyze the Trump era and the lead up to it in light of the rise of more progressive hegemony in culture? We're sort of into that a little bit, including news media and Hollywood. Is this symptomatic uh, less of a political divide and more of a social one? Hmm. Um, I'm not sure this is what the, the, the questioner meant, but, I, but I, what it puts me in mind of is, is political correctness and the backlash to it. Uh, and you do certainly get a, you hear a lot from conservative voters and swing voters that uh, they're appalled by um, uh, the, the feeling that they have to walk on eggshells and that, that if they make a linguistic choice that um, would have been fine two years previously, that that suddenly gets them labeled a bigot. Um, yeah. Whether or not that is an accurate perception on their part, it does seem to be their perception that this kind of, uh, uh, a, frankly, a campus culture uh, of intolerance has spread out and become a problem and they're just sick of it. I think that's true. Um, here's a very simple question, but a really poignant one. Three trillion dollar deficit? You know, nobody talks about it anymore. Yeah. You haven't talked about it, I haven't talked about it. The president, president clearly doesn't care about it. Well, he if, says he doesn't if care you'd kept on asking me about my agenda, I would have eventually gotten to, yeah, that's, uh, that's to entitlement. That's kind of the way it works. And we'll yeah. Eventually, we'll yeah. get to it. So um, there's never been a mass constituency for really reigning in spending. For I mean, there is in the abstract. Would you like a smaller government? That still pulls very well. If it means cutting this or that specific program, no. <clears throat> but it, I, th I, th I think I agree with that. But what's really frightening to me, I mean, yes, we've deferred and delayed and ignored and obfuscated on this issue for a long time, but it seems to me the last few years we're actually seeing people aggressively saying on both the left and the right, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, the president prides himself on, on being a champion of debt, thinks we should be borrowing more money because interest rates are low. And then you've got this school of thought uh, on the left that mm -hmm. talks about the fact that we can monetize everything. Well, Trump also said in, during the campaign that the national debt was going to get paid off during his two terms in office. So he's a little, he's a little behind right now yeah, yeah, on yeah, that. Yeah, but, uh, you know, but, um, Do you think it matters? So and on an entitlements in particular, right, both parties are moving left, right? The Democrats yeah. are talking about expanding entitlements. Um, you know, uh, there are plans, Elizabeth Warren has a plan to expand Social Security benefits for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. Bill Gates is going to get a bigger check too, uh, you know, um, and Medicare for all, which, you know, 30 to $40 trillion budget item um, with yeah, no particular yeah. way to pay for it. And, and then on the Republican side, the leftward movement is we're just not going to talk about this issue at all. And the, the attempts that were made under Paul Ryan to get the whole party on record behind some kinds of <clears throat> at least slowing the growth of Medicare in the future, that's just not uh, on the agenda right now. Yeah. You, you implied a few minutes ago that you were not likely to be appointed to the Supreme Court being a non-lawyer. However, I do remember in the when we There's were no getting, constitutional. No, requirement. I know, I know, yeah. I know. But I but I do remember your name coming up unexpectedly to me as a potential nominee for the Federal Reserve Board. 
Yeah, that was wild. Uh, yeah, I just, yeah. I, I thought, you know, I'm great regard for you, but I don't think of you as a Federal Reserve governor. But t t is, is there something to this? Do you, what, what are your thoughts on monetary policy? And specifically, can we just monetize everything? So uh, I think that um, the, pres well, the president says a lot of things. Uh, but I think that he is actually on the bedrock question of whether um, the December 2018 increase in interest rates was correct. Um, he thought it wasn't. Uh, he was correct about that. Jay Powell was wrong about that. Uh, I wouldn't say that, um, you know, Powell's an enemy of the people. Uh, that strikes me as demented. That's just the New York Times. But, um, yeah, right. Um, so, yeah, but it was the, uh, so I, I, I do think that um, a, a low interest rate policy is, is right for right now. Partly it's because the trade war has, I think, cut confidence uh, to the point where the, net, the neutral interest rate is, has fallen um, because, you know, there's, there's fear of economic weakness going forward. But, yeah, somebody suggested, because I agreed with the president on this, suggested said that I was in the mix and then the other media speculation went forward. I was actually on a, a spring, spring break trip with my daughter and I just decided to have some fun with it so I just tweeted out and made my pinned tweet, um, you know, the president is right about monetary <laughs> policy. And then all these people from the New York Times are retweeting, it's like, he's obviously campaigning, campaigning for, for the, the position. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, actually, um, I was, uh, happened to be one of the other, it, people on this trip with me was a White House staffer who said, oh, you're confirmable, but you're not nominatable. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that, I think that's right. The, yeah. the, the, the president would remember some of your previous comments. I think it would be called to his attention it's, it before seems too to long. Me, yeah. It seems to me that he's not lacking in sensitivity to those mm, issues. Yeah. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about the Democrats. We've got a couple of questions that go in this direction here. The president and... Congressman Emmer, my friend from Minnesota, who's the chairman of the Congressional Campaign Committee, and lots of other Republicans now are regularly using the word socialist to describe the Democratic Party. It's clear that that's going to be a part of, maybe a substantial part of the 2020 campaign, not just for the presidency, but for Congress as well. I'd like that you to look at that both substantively and politically. First of all, substantively, is what we're hearing from the Democrats really socialism? Or, or, and, and, and how would we define that? And is it a good strategy for the Republicans? You don't hear um, much in the way of a precise definition uh, from even those Democrats who describe themselves as socialists. So Bernie Sanders has given two major speeches on this subject where, um, where he, A, says, you know, they used to, um, the conservatives, they used to smear uh, FDR as a socialist. Um, so don't, don't fall for that. I'm a socialist, and what I want is what FDR wanted. Wait, <laughs> didn't you just say it was a smear? To, anyway, um, and then he, you know, he doesn't exactly explain why. You, know, you would think that if you wanted to be a democratic socialist and you wanted to sell this in our country, you'd say, you know, part of your big speech on socialism would be, and this is why this is not Venezuela, and this is not Cuba. He, he skips that part of, yeah, the, uh, yeah. of the speech. Um, Largely what they are talking about is a socially democratic, larger government state of the kind uh, that you see in Scandinavia. Just over the weekend, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, I guess she's been in Denmark, and she was saying basically this is the kind of thing we want. 
well, most of those countries have gotten rid of their wealth taxes. Right. Um, a lot of them have tighter immigration controls um, uh, and less progressive systems of taxation than we have in the U.S. So I don't. I, I think there's a lot of kind of selective borrowing. Um, I think that uh, sort of on the politics of it. It's certainly the kind of thing that is going to help bind conservatives who have reservations about Trump to him because they think of the alternative as being unacceptably extreme. Uh, and socialism still does not poll especially well. I think people have got a, there's a really misleading impression about this. If you look under the hood of all the polling which seems to suggest you, socialism is, is more popular than it's ever been, it's more popular than capitalism, What's happened is capitalism has fallen in popularity, not that socialism has risen. Those numbers have barely budged. Even among young people, the young people of 15 years ago were not particularly less pro-socialist, they were more pro-capitalist. I think what's really happened is people are, after the experience of, you know, say 2000 to 2015, where you had a mild recession, a weak recovery, a severe recession, and then another weak recovery, I think people lost faith, and particularly young people lost faith, because they were starting their working lives in a bad labor market, which is a really bad place to be, uh, and the kind of thing that does shake people's confidence. Um, but anyway, I, I may be uh, sort of going a little bit adrift from the question. Uh, look, I think that it makes sense for Trump to, um, to tag socialism on the other party much more so than I think it makes sense for the Democrats to embrace the label. And you'll notice that Elizabeth Warren, for example, doesn't embrace the label yeah. of socialism. And Bernie has, Sanders has taken her on for that recently. Right. Right. She, she said she's a capitalist to her bones. Uh, you know, just technically, you know, we, we socialize the costs of all sorts of things in this country, this, this institution, the roads in Minnesota, most of which are Minneapolis, most of which are not passable this season. The little, um, the little bit of Scandinavian yeah, U.S. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if you've driven around Minneapolis much, but every time I hear a Republican or Democrat say that we need to spend a lot more money on infrastructure, I think if we spend any more money on infrastructure in Minneapolis, the city will come to an absolute halt. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm, I'm in favor of infrastructure, don't people get me wrong, right. it's just like, you can't get there from here anyway. But, but which of the policies, as opposed to the label socialism that we are seeing from the more left-wing candidates on the Democratic side, which are most vulnerable politically? Well, I think we've already talked about Medicare for All being a, a serious vulnerability. Uh, I think that some of the college debt proposals um, are political vulnerabilities as well. They uh, tend to be quite unpopular with um, voters without college degrees, um, a lot of them swing voters, uh, and some Democratic strategists are saying, let's, let's move away from that issue. Um, I think one sleeper issue that people are, um, people, have, people have not yet quite recognized the, p the potential problem is carbon taxes, um, which a number of the Democratic candidates have come out in favor of, and the Democrats tend to think that they hold a winning hand on climate change because the public is with them and not with the Republicans on the question of whether it's happening. But on the question of what is to be done about it, um, yeah. there is not a huge appetite to pay a larger electricity bill. Um, to confirm that, I, I was, for, unfortunately, it was for a funeral. I was in Australia in the middle of their national campaign last spring. And 
the, everybody expected the Labor Party was going to displace the conservative coalition. Uh, it was almost a universally accepted premise. And the Labor Party ran on a very aggressive environmental platform. And, the post, and of course, the conservatives won a, an unexpected upset victory. Uh, much of the post-election polling showed that it was because, of, maybe it's even a sleeper vote, but a, 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 a rebellion against the more extreme environmental proposals because, as you said, when people started figuring out it was going to cost me money, um, things like that, it, they rejected it. The Democrats could go in that direct direction on climate change. Yeah, that's right. Um, a couple of questions on, that go more to the rhetoric of politics. Um, the hateful rhetoric, as a couple of questioners asked. And, you know, I think the presumption of those questions is that most of that is blameable on Donald Trump. What, what do you think of the state of rhetoric in this country, and, and how much of it is the fault of the president, and is there any fault on the side of the, of the Democrats? So uh, I think that we have been polarizing in our politics for a very long time. Uh, and that that is a process that feeds on itself. Um, and so when the Republican Party becomes more conservative, um, the remaining two or three liberals leave and make the Democratic Party more liberal. And the remaining two or three conservatives on the Democratic side leave. That's how you get more and more polarized politics. Um, we are now in a place where what holds our uh, party coalitions together is not any shared philosophical principle or policy objective so much as it is hostility to the other side. Um, it is um, negative polarization. Uh, and I think that the, the rhetoric is, has grown out from that. It helps to some extent when both of your, your most committed partisans on both sides are in totally different media environments and, and reading different things, getting different sources of information. Uh, when they know fewer and fewer people who are of the other kind of political persuasion, and that, you know, we have more landslide states, more landslide counties, more landslide neighborhoods than we used to, so it is more possible for people to go through their lives with less and less understanding of what their fellow Americans on the other side of the political divide believe. It also means that polarization, you're going to excuse your own side. You're going to say, well, the other side did something worse. And every time that President Trump says something, you know, somebody will say, well, you know, Joe Biden, moderate Joe Biden, was the one who in 2012 was saying to an African-American audience, the Republicans want to put you all back in chains, right? Mm -hmm. Not the most unifying or accurate or sane of sentiments. Um, so, and, and part of what ha has happened, you know, I mentioned political correctness as well. I do think you, it is a rationalization. It is not, I think, justified, but I do think that a lot of people on the Republican side and the Trumpian side will say, look, they're going to call us bigots whatever we do, so we should just pay no mind to any need to sort of police our language or our tone and, and, and give not only political correctness but sort of ordinary manners um, the back of our hand. Do you think it's a conscious strategy on the part of the president to divide racially? I think maybe the man and the strategy have met. Um, you know, I think that, that a lot of what he does, it's his basic impulse. I mean, if you go back to, if you go back over his kind of pre-political career, um, you know, look at what he said about the Central Park Five. I mean, he's got an instinct for this kind of, uh, 
uh, outer borough, uh, New York, uh, let's say at the very least racial conservatism. Um, and, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't have much time for sensitivity. At the same time, you know, he will, he does, I think, genuinely want to um, do better uh, among Hispanics and blacks. So I think that there are this kind of warring sides to him, right? I mean, he'll, I mean, he, he seems to be, to take genuine pride in having done better than Romney among Hispanics, for example. That was a shocking outcome, I thought. I mean, I, I because of his rhetoric on yeah. immigration and Mexicans and things, I had expected that he would tank in that community. And the fact that he actually increased by a couple percent over Romney's vote was shocking to me, and it's, it continues to be borne out in the polls. The Hispanic vote and the African-American vote are not by any means the same, or are not behaving the same politically. Well, but, and he did better among African-Americans as well, uh, and I think that's partly because Obama's not on the ballot yeah, in 2016. And I do think, in general, you would have expected, after two Democratic terms, a fall-off across the board for Democrats. Is there any evidence of change uh, among young voters in, in those minority communities? Um, you, are, you, you are seeing some openness in the polling among young, younger African Americans, um, either toward the Republican Party or at least not being in the Democratic Party. And, and but would, that's happened before, and it has not lasted And what into would conservatives adulthood. say to those folks to get them to actually vote Republican? Well, I think anything, frankly. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, Can I think you that be a little more specific. I think any agenda that is not we are hostile to you and we want to put you back in chains is an improvement. <laughs> um, because the thing is, look, Afri among African Americans, there are a, a large range of views where a lot of places where um, African Americans are more liberal than whites, right? But Republicans do not get the sh the underperform compared to the percentage of African-Americans who are against tax increases or who are pro-life or who want immigration control. Um, that's, that gap is where Republicans can make inroads. It's not, I think, fundamentally a question of changing your message. It's, it's fundamentally a question of actually courting those votes. People are not gonna vote for you if you haven't asked for their votes in the first place and if they think of you as being Hostile I, to I think I think that's right. I, it, un, unfortunately, most of the time that I was coming up in politics, I, you know, I didn't have a big minority constituency in southwest and west central Minnesota, but I'd see other campaigns, and you look at the campaign aimed at the African-American vote, and it wasn't really aimed at the African-American vote. It was mm -hmm. aimed at moderate suburbanites mm -hmm. who wanted you to appeal to the African-American vote. In terms of making a real campaign to get African-Americans or other minorities to vote for conservative candidates, I haven't seen that before. Yeah, and you know, the, the, this basic principle I think is true sort of across the board. So I think that a lot of white working class voters got the message from the Democratic Party between 2012 and 2016, the Democrats were less and less interested in them and you know, felt that demographic change allowed them to dispense with them as a declining share of the population. People tend not to like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you did a column recently on why Republicans stick with Trump, and we've talked a little bit about that. We got a few questions on more like, when do you think the conservative voters will turn on Trump for all the mm. lies and deceitful things he's been doing? A lot of questions like that. But why don't you, I don't want you to just regurgitate that column, but why don't you talk a little bit about why conservatives stick with Trump, even if they don't like his rhetoric and think that he may not be telling the truth? What's, what's the answer to that? Well, as, as Vin said earlier, um, 
one of the reasons a lot of conservatives were against him in 2016 was they thought he was throwing away the election, that he was a sure loser, and that was invalidated. Another reason was people thought, given his record, he would be he'd govern as a liberal. He wouldn't be reliable on guns and abortion and taxes and so on and so forth. And he has governed, as I said earlier, as an orthodox conservative. So what's really been left are, as bases for conservative objections to Trump, are one, his stances on some specific issues like trade and immigration, which are, which are not deal breakers for most conservatives. I mean, you know, Mitt Romney ran saying he was going to slap tariffs on China and he was going to be your self-deportation guy. They weren't deal breakers for conservatives back then. They're not deal breakers now. And then last, the character questions. It's, it's a, and that's what's really the thing that has driven um, the, the opposition uh, among conservatives. Are you, do you put such, so much weight on the president's character that um, you overlook a large range of policy issues where you agree with them? Um, and I think that it shouldn't be surprising that conservatives have stuck with him when they agree with him on the issues that they care most about, and the people who are most uh, foaming with rage against him are people they disagree with mm -hmm. on all of those issues. Add into that that we are already in this polarized political environment, and none of this is surprising. What could change it would be a weakening of the economy, would be Trump crossing the Republican base on one of the red line issues, um, like guns or life, um, or raising taxes. He's not going to do any of those things. Um, and then I guess just some sort of unimaginable scandal. But you're certainly not going to see. You're not going to see Republican. It's hard to imagine what is unimaginable. <laughs> well, and people and people adjust over time. Yeah. People adjust rapidly. So if you had given yeah. them the yeah. fact pattern of Ukraine six months ago and asked in the abstract, is this tolerable? I think a lot of people would have said no. Who are not saying no now? Uh, a related question. You know, we've got people like. Mike Gerson at the Washington Post and Pete Weiner at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, who are conservatives of long standing and are almost becoming obsessive in their concern that the evangelical community, of which both of those guys happen to be part, has, be, has ignored entirely the character question and become really the most enthusiastic backers of this president. How do you explain that? Well, yeah, the, the, the character issue and it's tied up with the race question as well. Um, because Gerson and Weiner and a lot of other evangelicals, certainly pre-Trump, were of the view that evangelicals needed to do better themselves among non-whites. They needed their own sort of minority outreach strategy, and that's obviously fallen by the wayside. I think if you look at the polling on, um, or the survey research on people's attitudes towards religion, there's been increasing hostility and decreasing affiliation, and partly it's because of an association with conservative politics. Um, now, if you are a conservative evangelical, on some of those things you might just say, well, this is what the actual, this is actually entailed by our religious commitments and we shouldn't mm -hmm. abandon those. But I think you'd also want to look at some of the ways where um, maybe we have gratuitously given offense. Maybe we are coming across as being hypocrites or being too interested in power for its own sake. Um, and I do think that one of the risks of Trump for evangelicals and for social conservatives generally is precisely that it ends up being discrediting 
um, that there's a, there's a long-term loss of respect and a long, long-term loss of membership. So, for example, I, as, you, as you know, that I've worked a lot on the right to life issue. It's an important issue to me. And I have to say that President Trump has, um, has given pro-lifers everything that we have asked for. I can't fault him on that, but I do worry about the long-term damage that could be done of having what I think of as one of the great civil rights causes of our time associated with a person who has all of his other traits. It's an interesting thing to think about what might happen with the evangelical, the politicization of the evangelicals going forward. Uh, if you go back through history, there, after the Scopes so-called monkey trial, there was a, most of that community dropped out of politics mm -hmm. and said, you know, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. And there was a, a revulsion at politics because of what had happened or how they'd been portrayed in the, at, that, at that time. And that community came heavily back into politics, mainly to support Ronald Reagan, I would say, not entirely, but mainly, and in reaction to the Roe versus Wade decision. And lo and behold, they won. I mean, Reagan won, then got reelected, and you wonder what, will, what the reaction of that community would be having put all of this faith in Donald Trump if he should get beat. Well, and a lot of evangelical voices, probably the leading ones right now, are basically suggesting that, you know, his enemies are your enemies. Uh, they hate him because they hate you. Mm -hmm. uh, and you should sort of cleave to him as a kind of aggrieved minority um, whose identity is wrapped up in him. Um, so, yeah, it will be interesting. And I do think, you know, I had said something earlier about how a lot of congressional Republicans think, well, things go back to normal once he fades away, uh, whether he loses in 2020 or, or serves out a second term. But, of course, he might not fade away. There's no reason why having been defeated, he just sort of leaves politics altogether. And he could continue to be a disruptive presence in our politics for quite some time. And I can't see it, it doesn't seem likely to me that he would be the type of person that would anoint a successor or care about a successor. I mean, even if, let's assume- I have he gets, a hard time seeing it being Mike Pence. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It doesn't I think, seem- I think, I think Ivanka has the inside track on that. <laughs> How about Nikki Haley, speaking of Indian Americans? Uh, I think she is one of the few people who have been able to serve in the Trump administration and see their reputation enhanced. Um, she has obviously made a conscious choice that she is, um, she is going to align herself with Trump, but, but from arm's length, you know, with a tongue. Uh, and, um, you know, we'll, we'll see if that works. I tend to think that she will not be able to escape being branded an enemy of Trump world at the end of the day that the fact that she wasn't with him in the primaries, that she clearly isn't sympathetic with a lot of what he stands for, um, will matter too much to Trump's biggest admirers for her to, to get that vote without facing a real fight from somebody who is more associated with Trump world or maybe even has Trump's backing. Yeah, and I think that that's right. But I also think that there's a possibility that the model of, of of a, of a non-politician could be fairly strong going forward. Maybe we're all of us conventional thinkers are looking at governors, former governors, senators, and it may well be that the Trump constituency, such as it is, one of the lessons that they have learned is they want, they, they want a champion who is not in politics, and it could be somebody we've never thought of. Well, if, if Trump loses in 2020, the, I think 
how, how badly does he lose and how is that loss interpreted? Is it interpreted by um, a lot of people you know, outside his hardcore, um, but people who are friendly or support him with reservations or whatever, so wow, that was a huge mistake and we need to avoid doing that again? Or is it interpreted in some different way? Is it interpreted as, you know, the problem was um, we didn't fight hard enough against the deep state and the media and those never Trumpers? Um, and I think, that that's just an open question, and it's going to depend in part on. I mean, you know, people on people will spin it the way they want to spin it, mm -hmm. but which spin prevails will in part, I think, depend on the actual results. If Trump loses badly, if you lose the Senate at the same time, if the Kansas Senate seat is lost during mm -hmm. this election, then I think it becomes a harder harder to maintain a kind of Trumpist version of the of the argument over where to go forward, um, but. You know who knows what's going to happen. I have just one final question, then we'll be we'll be done. But you know, you write for Bloomberg, you write for National Review, you blog for the American Enterprise Institute. I noticed I've noticed lately that presidents become critical of Fox News because a poll showed the, the, the Fox polls are not generous to him, and he's lauding some other poll. What is the state of conservative media in this country, and what where do you see it going in the mm. regardless of what happens with this president? Uh, fragmented uh, and troubled, um, I think uh, partly because of polarization, partly because of the economic state of the media in general right now, trying to find a workable business model for quality journalism of any kind um, is difficult right now. I, I like to say that the, uh, the media is the one declining industry in America that isn't part of Trump's base. And... <laughs> In conservative media, as with the other parts of the media, there's a constant need to get the clickbait um, and to just give people what they want to hear. Um, and certainly investigative journalism is much harder to fund. Um, and sort of issue-oriented journalism is, uh, is harder to fund as well. So I think... Um, we're all kind of feeling our way through. I think there's still um, really good work that's being done uh, in a lot of places. I think there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of websites. I think National Review is is doing a nice job of being a home for intra-conservative debate mm -hmm. uh, on everything from from Trump to trade to foreign policy. Most of the national, most of your National Review colleagues, almost all of whom were anti-Trump. Most of them seem to have accommodated to Trump. Is that an accurate way of looking at it? Well, you know, so there's Jonah Goldberg, but he's now left National yeah, right, Review. Right. Um, I think there, there are still quite a few of us um, who, are, who are critical, but there are others um, who are very supportive. Um, so Victor Davis Hanson is one of our writers, and he's been very strongly right. in Trump's corner during the election and following. And then there are other people who are, uh, who are somewhere in between. You know, Kyle Smith, uh, one of our writers, you know, he regularly criticizes the president while also saying, I, ex I expect, given the alternatives, I'm likely going to vote for him. Um, but there's, there's, a, there's definitely a lot of pressure, uh, and there appears to be a lot of pressure at Fox itself to um, sort of just sort of toe a party line. Um, and, uh, you know, that's not the kind of journalism that I signed up for, and I, I still think that, that we can make a go of it not doing that. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but right now it's a little rocky. Okay. Uh, we've gone through, I think, most all of the questions from the audience. Thank you all for coming today, and thank you, thank you. Ramesh for everything here.
Thank you very much.